Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. We continue our sermon series from the Acts of the Apostles. If you turn this morning to the 17th chapter, we're beginning in a moment in verse 16, Acts chapter 17. Barry A. Cosman and Seymour P. Lackman in their book, One Nation Under God, find that religious identity today in America is a, for the most part, a spiritual gloss over a largely secular society. While 90% of us say we, quote, got religion, well, living it out is another matter. We personalize our religion with little regard or respect for higher authority. We don't really care what Scripture says or what the church says anymore. We like our religion without the particulars. No requirements for moral action, no restraints on our personal pleasure, and very few communal obligations. Well, those who take their faith seriously have to be on guard. Yale Law Professor Stephen L. Carter author of the book, The Culture of Disbelief, says that people who claim that their lives are ordered around their core value of their faith, those who inspired to share their faith are mocked today at every turn. The assumption is, if you want to tell me about your faith, if you want to tell me about Jesus, then you must be irrational. You must be a right-wing zealot. You're wrong to share that with me. Well, if the Apostle Paul were to preach in America today, he might have haunting reflections back to Athens and his dialogue with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And his appearance, we'll look out today before the court, the Areopagus there in Athens. Now, Athens was not a place that Paul intended to go to in his missionary planning. No, things got hot in Berea, and Paul was whisked away by those who were trying to provide a safe place for him, and he was taken eventually to Athens. Now, while he was there, he began to, to look around at the sights of Athens. Now, he's waiting there for Silas and Timothy to join him on the missionary journey, and he begins to take in the city, and it's not the golden age of Athens like 5 B.C. or, or the 4th century B.C., the 5th or 4th century B.C.s, but rather it, it, it's not that, but it's still the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Is still the cultural center of the Roman Empire. And there are a lot of neat things to see in Athens. There are beautiful architecture and beautiful art. Now, most of the architecture was centered around a temple to a god or a goddess. They were beautiful buildings, but they were pagan buildings. They were set to venerate, to worship a god or a goddess of the Greek pantheon. And most of the art also related to the gods and goddesses. The art depicted the conquest, the 
wars that the gods and the goddesses had won and all their power and their uniqueness. So Paul, picture him now, he's been whisked away to Athens. He's in this beautiful city with the art and the architecture and he's looking around and everything is about a Greek god or goddess. The beautiful buildings are about Greek goddesses and gods. The wonderful art depicts Greek gods and goddesses and he sees it all and don't forget, Paul is at heart a Jew, after all. He knew the commandments well, and as he looks at these pagan temples to gods and goddesses and the art, I can, I can only believe that Paul is hearing in his mind the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. He is provoked by these sights that he sees. Well, let's read verse 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So there he is in Athens looking at the architecture and the art. It bothers him. He's a Jew. He knows you don't make idols and worship something made with the hands of men. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we won't know, therefore, what all this means. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time and nothing more than telling or hearing something new. Well, Paul does what Paul usually does, even though he's in this pagan city, this cultural center of the Greek world. He goes to the synagogue, and there at the synagogue, he preaches Jesus to the Jews, and he preaches Jesus to the God-fearers, and, and then he goes to the agora, the marketplace, the, the center, the hub of life in Athens. And there he finds uh, two major schools of philosophy that were ruling the day at the time, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, and he begins to tell them about Jesus. He begins to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics couldn't be more different than they are from each other. The Epicureans asserted that happiness and pleasure were the aim of a tranquil life. Your life was about finding happiness and pleasure. We could just call them Americans, but we're going to call them Epicureans here for the sake of the text. Happiness and pleasure is the center of life. And they believe that everything happened by chance. 
The gods and the goddesses, yeah, they've got beautiful temples, but they're remote, they're uninvolved, they're disinterested in human affairs, and so don't have any anxiety about the gods or goddesses. Live life free of passion, live life free of pain, live life free of fear of any kind, and therefore their slogan was, eat, drink, and be merry. How do you live life? Eat, drink, and be merry. Have some fun, have some pleasure. The Stoics, like their founder Zeno, were, were a complete opposite. They thought that all of life was determined by the gods and goddesses. They were not remote. They were controlling us like puppets, and therefore life was be, to be lived according to the laws of nature. Do not become emotionally involved in life. You just accept nature, the lot the gods and goddesses give you, and you live it without being intense in living your life. They were pantheistic. They thought gods were found in everything and everybody. Well, these Epicureans who eat, drink, have a merry time, and the Stoics who just kind of try to live life without living life, they both find this preaching of Paul this preaching of Jesus and the resurrection as odd. They call him a babbler. That, the word is spermologos, a seed spreader. It's, it's the image of a little bird out in the, the barnyard pecking at a seed here and a seed there. We don't know what he's talking about. Paul is all over the place. Who is this Jesus? What is this resurrection? Now, if you're Epicurean, think again, much like Americans. I'm saying it to be funny, but I'm really not. They don't believe in life after death. They, they live life now. You, you get it while you can. And therefore, the idea of resurrection was completely foreign to the eat, drink, and be merry crowd. They were going to get all they could here and now. There's nothing to come after. And the Stoics, on the other hand, they believed the spark, the, the soul survived after death, but not the body. And therefore, this preaching of a bodily resurrection would not be welcomed by the Epicureans, who don't believe in anything after death, nor the Stoics, who believe that the soul is the only part of one's being that survives after death. And so, they're confused. Look what they say at the end of verse 18. He's, he's a proclaimer of strange deities. They thought he was preaching about, now remember, gods and goddesses are everywhere. They think he's preaching about uh, two deities, one deity named Jesus and another goddess named Resurrection. What is this goddess, this resurrection goddess? They don't know what he's talking about. They are utterly confused by the words of the Apostle Paul. Well, they ask Paul if he, he want to speak before the Areopagus. It's that wonderful court. It's the same court that tried and condemned Socrates to death centuries before. Now that Athens was democratic, the, the power of the Areopagus was limited. It was more of an overseer, a, a philosophical review board. They wanted to hear all the new teachings and all the new philosophers. They met on Mars Hill. Well, Paul had now the opportunity to preach Jesus before the most elite ears in the Roman Empire, the members of the Areopagus. And so he starts his sermon in verse 22. Look what he preaches. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are religious in all respects. 
For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found this altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. This God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now imagine when he's saying that all the temples of the gods and goddesses around. The real God doesn't dwell in one of these temples you make with hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. He's not a God served or made by human hands. He himself gives life to all and breath to all things. Verse 26. And he made known from one every nation of humankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries and their habitation, that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And in him we live and move and exist, just like your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring and being the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now imagine all the statues of gods and goddesses, and he says, don't think of God like something made out of stone by your hands or something made out of gold or silver, a statue to be worshipped. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness to the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There it is, the resurrection. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. Some of them did. And others said, oh, we'll hear this again another day. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and were believed among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Men of Athens, I observe that you're religious in every way. You think a temple on every hill, a piece of art about all the, the great pantheon of gods. And then he finds this altar that's to an unknown god. I was walking around looking at your temples, looking at your art. I even stumbled upon an altar that you've run out of gods and goddesses. It was just an altar to an unknown god. Diogenes in the lives of the philosophers gives us the origin of these altars to unknown gods. It's the 6th century B.C. Athens has a terrible plague of pestilence. They've tried every can, everything they can to stop the pestilence, and they cannot stop it. So they send to Crete to get a, a man, a, a prophet, by the name of Epimenides. And when he comes, he says, let's start here on the hill. Let's get a herd of black and white sheep. Let's shoo them from the hill. And wherever a sheep stops, you sacrifice that sheep right there, and you build an altar. So they, they start the sheep there at the hill where the court would meet, they shoo them away, and everywhere a sheep stops, the sheep is sacrificed, an altar is built. All these sheep, black and white, well, they run out of gods and goddesses. A sheep might 
stop in a weird place and they say, well, who's the god or goddess of this place? We don't know. So build an altar to an unknown god. And the plague stopped. The pestilence stops. And so they thought that Epimenides had worked this as a prophet. Well, Paul says, "You, you don't even know who God is. You have built a monument to an unknown God. This God that you're not aware of, I'm going to tell you who he is. And then he begins to to quote one of their own poets. And this God, we live and we move and we have our being is a translation. In this God is everything. And let me tell you about this God. He is a God who created. He is a God who revealed. He is a God who raised Jesus from the dead. He is a God through Jesus who will judge everybody on that appointed day. Well, the Athenians had heard the message about Jesus and the resurrection, and some of them sneered and laughed. The Epicureans didn't believe in resurrection, and the Stoics saw only the soul. And some of them said, well, it's kind of interesting, but not very. We'll just put it off, and we'll hear about Jesus on another day. But some of them accepted. I want you to notice this morning these three responses to the preaching of the gospel. We can laugh it off, we can put it off, or we can take it in. When we ourselves hear about Jesus, we can laugh it off, we can put it off, or like the few, we can take it in. Well, first of all, laughing it off. Mocked sneered, jeered, laughed at the message of Jesus. Every generation has those that laugh at the sound and the preaching of the gospel. It sounds foolish to them. Fred Craddock tells a story about some fraternity brothers in college who for their skit, when all the fraternities were doing their skits, they decided they would mock evangelical religion. And so they got one of them who seemed like an orator, and he played the part of the preacher, and another one played the part of the music director, and another group played the part of the amen crowd. And so they went to the theater to practice, and the guy who's playing the part of the preacher, just making fun of the whole thing, he preaches hard. He preaches about hell, and you need to repent. And the other guys were mocking and saying, amen, preach it, brother, amen, preach it, brother. And the guy let, got up and led an old song. And they, were, and they even gave a hymn of invitation to the climax of their mockery of evangelical religion. At the end, when they gave the mock invitation, the custodian came down forward and asked to receive Jesus into his life. You might mock the messenger. But the message is powerful, no matter who might be preaching it. You can laugh it off, like the fraternity brothers or the Areopagus that day. General William Booth says, if you ever go to hell, keep your eyes open for a man huddled in the corner. You'll hear him, one, two, three, 28, 29, 30. When he says 30 and stops, you'll know it's Judas. 
And you'll know that you'll hear Judas kind of mumbling under his breath, I sold him for 30 pieces of silver. I sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And the truth of the matter is Judas sold himself for 30 pieces of silver. But if you see him, he'll come over to you and he will say, I sold him for 30 pieces of silver. What did you sell him for? What did you trade your soul in for? Judas wants a God who makes business sense. The philosophers, the Ariopagus, want a God that made intellectual sense. What kind of God are you looking for? What kind of God would be the God that would make you laugh? Well, looking for the kind of God we want isn't the key, is it? It is receiving the God who's revealed, the God of Scripture. The God who creates and redeems and, yes, judges and comes back for those who are his own. The God of creation, the God of grace. There's another thing we can do. We can put it off. Notice what they say at the end of verse 32. We shall hear you another day concerning this. Some of them laughed and sneered and others said, we're going to put this off. We can laugh it off or, secondly, we can put it off. I think this is the most dangerous response to the preaching of the gospel, to put it off. You and I think in our own mind that we're in control of our own destiny, that we're in control of our own calendars. Take it from a guy who's on the other end of the phone when there's a tragedy. You have no idea when you awaken in the morning, how your day is going to end or if it will be your last day. You have no idea how that day will unfold for you and your family. It is a very dangerous thing to put it off. Many of us want to respond to the gospel, but we wait. Oh, I'm going to wait till I get my life in order. I'm going to wait until I understand more. I'm going to wait till I'm going to wait. There's some of you here this morning who, who don't need to wait any longer. This is the day of the proclamation of the gospel, and you need to respond and say yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There are others who've put off your baptism. You need to go on with the public proclamation. I die with him, and I rise with him. There's some of you who put off your service. You need to say, I want to be an exclamation point for the Lord, not a question mark. Frank Pollard, who is dead now, but one of the great preachers in Baptist history, says, is there any one of us in our life who doesn't want to please God? No. Deep down, we all want to please God. Is there anyone who doesn't want to live this life as a person who's forgiven, a Christian, and one who forgives others, to be a partaker and a giver of grace, and then to die in that grace and go on to the kingdom of God? No, everybody deep down wants that. I think not, he says. There's not, not anyone who, who wants to miss that. But you want, don't want to do it today. Unless you are compelled spiritually, unless you are completely dedicated to the moment, you postpone that decision and you put off your response to the gospel. And every time you postpone your response to the preaching of the gospel, you are gambling. You are gambling with your own destiny and your own commitment. 
You're gambling with the destiny commitment of others that God has chosen you to influence and preach the gospel to. In fact, Satan would say to you this morning at the preaching of the word of God, yes, it's true. Yes, you need to do something. Just don't do it today. Do it another day. The most dangerous response to the preaching of the gospel is to put it off. It reminds me of Dr. Seuss's Zode. Did you ever tell you about the young Zode who came to two signs at the fork in the road? One said to place one and the other to place two. So the Zode had to make up his mind what to do. Well, the Zode, he scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, now I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, that place might be hot, so how do I know if I'll like it or not? On the other hand, I'll feel like such a fool if I go to place two and I, I find it's too cool. In that case, I might catch a chill and turn blue. So place one may be the best and not place two. On the other hand, though, if place one is too high, I may get a terrible earache and die. On the other hand, though, if place two is too low, I could get some terribly strange pain in my toe, so place one may be best. So he started to go, and he stopped, and he said, on the other hand, other hand, other hand, other hand, for 36 hours and one half, the Zode made starts and stops at that fork in the road, saying, no, don't take a chance, you may be right. Then he got an idea that was wonderfully bright. Play safe, cried the Zode. I'll play it safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start off to both places at once. And that's how the Zode, who could not take a chance, went to no place at all with a split in his pants. <laughs> Some of you are like that Zode. How many Sundays do you have to hear the gospel before you say, I believe? And I don't think the problem is your lack of belief. It's the courage to embrace. There's a third thing we can do. We can take it in. Notice, but some men join him. Well, and a woman too, Demarius, joined him. Now, if all that Paul had from the preaching of that gospel was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Demarius, then it would have been worth preaching the gospel. But some did believe. Paul determined to preach Christ and to preach Christ crucified, to preach God's love and God's grace, and to ask him to respond. Some laughed. A lot of people still laugh at what we're doing this morning. Some put it off, said, it's compelling, it's true, but next Sunday... And some embraced it and took it in. Those watching by way of television or, or those in this great sanctuary, how do you respond today to the preaching of the gospel? In, in fact, what's odd is 2,000 years after Paul preached that sermon on Mars Hill, there are only three responses to the gospel still. You can make fun of it. You can acknowledge it, but put it off and delay it to another day. Or you can embrace it and say, today is my day to say, Jesus is Lord. That God is creator and Jesus died for my sins and I am a sinner and I need a savior. I already know how the court in Athens responded. 
I've got the names of the two among the some who said yes. And now 2,000 years later, you just heard the gospel preached, and you've got the same three choices. And I, I know what they did. What I don't know is what you'll do, how you'll respond. Will you laugh it off? Will you put it off yet another Sunday? Or will you take it in? Only taking it in and making Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. He died for us, and in that us, he died for you. How do you do that, Pastor? All you got to do is say, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I acknowledge that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, and I'll take baby steps from here on out, but that's where I want to start. Some of you need to start that journey today. Some of you watching by way of television need to take that journey today. Some in this room need to take that journey today. Let us pray. Some of you would pray with me this morning. Oh, God, pray in your own heart. I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I've put it off, but today I want to say with all that I am and in all that I understand, Jesus is Lord. He died for me and he rose again. And I will not live another second outside of the glory and the grace of the resurrection of Jesus. And in his name I pray. Amen.